Okay, why don't we go ahead and get started. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back uh, to the Scola Christi. And we're picking up with our reading of Romano Guardini's Meditations Before Mass. And I'm sorry for the recent inconsistency in the groups due to ill health, and hopefully we'll get on a roll here monthly and uh, sort of get back to what we've been doing. And uh, following uh, Guardini, who so well lays out before us uh, the, the various mysteries of the, the liturgy that we uh, participate in every Sunday, but perhaps take for granted, and also helps us, I think, to deepen our understanding of the various parts of the liturgy that we might prepare ourselves and enter into it more fully. And uh, tonight we're beginning a new section in the book on the congregation itself. And, uh, and, sometime, and he'll, in the months to come, we'll be dealing with some of the things that are often hindrances to us, or we might even say uh, impediments to our uh, entering into the liturgy fully, the way that we understand ourselves as part of the congregation, in particular, as part of the body of Christ. There can be a kind of radical subjectivism, individualism, our ego can get in the way, and, uh, and lack of charity, too. And the, tonight, uh, he'll be focusing on that in particular uh, in regards to um, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 23, 5, 23 and on, where uh, Christ is, is telling them, when you bring your uh, gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, go first be reconciled with your, your brother, leave your gift, go be reconciled and then come and offer your gift to the Lord. And so, so this will be the primary focus of, of his uh, reflection tonight. How is it that we enter into this and there's into the, our offering of this most perfect sacrifice uh, of the son to the father? And basically Guardini says, tells us that there has to be a radical unity that exists among us that we cannot come and offer to the Father this perfect love of the Son and do so uh, neglecting the, the relationships where there might be division among us in one form or another. And so we have to constantly be struggling uh, to foster forgiveness within our hearts or to foster reconciliation where it's possible within relationships that we can't enter into the liturgy, in other words, in a passive kind of way, and neglecting all of our other relationships, where there's a, a lack of love here. How do we embrace our God with love, who's also giving us the, a perfect love as our very food and drinks? It's a very, these are going to be very challenging and uh, personal reflections for us, I think, over the next couple of months. How is it that we uh, enter into this uh, celebration with minds and hearts made pure, but also with forgiving and loving hearts. Okay, as always, uh, we're, we do this as a kind of group Lexio Divina, and so uh, sort of a prayerful, slow uh, reflection on the text, and we'll stop after each paragraph if you want to offer comments or if you have a question. Uh, the print in red, the italicized print, is just some of my uh, uh, preparatory remarks, and I also uh, have given you here tonight the commentary uh, from Matthew's Gospel by Erasmo Maricacus, an extraordinary uh, commentator on the scriptures. He's a three-volume series on Matthew, where it's a mixture of uh, very solid scholarship, but also uh, a depth of spirituality, a rootedness in what the saints teach about the, the scriptures. So if you ever have an opportunity to get a hold of this 
commentary. It would be great for your daily Lexio. I'm just going to pull one little paragraph from that tonight for us to, to look at in regards to our reflection on uh, Matthew 5, 23 and following that uh, Guardini will address in the text. Uh, but the rest is for your meditation after the group. Guardini now shifts his focus to the congregation itself and specifically the interior disposition of all those present, priest and laity alike. A congregation is not simply a gathering of many people together and not even a gathering of the pious and reverent. More specifically, Guardini tells us they are people, quote, disciplined by faith and conscious of their membership in Christ gathered to celebrate the sacred mysteries. This does not simply happen spontaneously. Rather, the congregation must will it. Many things aid in the creation of this reality, but one element is absolutely necessary. Guardini describes it thus. Be this as it may, anyone who knows that someone's, uh, somewhere someone has something against him certainly can do one thing. He can promise himself to remove the injustice by correcting it as soon as possible. The honest intention suffices to bring down the wall between himself and his brother. Immediately, the unifying element is free again to contact all parts. As soon as the injustice that isolates has been overcome, the congregation is restored. A radical unity must exist between members of the congregation. Any wall that divides must be removed if they are to stand before God. Sacred unity must be maintained at all cost. Forgiveness must be sought and at least established in one's heart. There can be no indifference towards another within us or false friendliness. Divine love must find its footing within us who have been made sons and daughters of God. So very challenging that we have to always keep in mind as we approach the celebration of mass, that we do not do this in an isolated kind of way and uh, with a failure to acknowledge what's going on in the rest of our lives. That if there is a disunity or a breakdown in love in some way uh, between ourselves and family members or friends, uh, that. Uh, we have an obligation to seek to, to rectify that, at least to have the intention uh, to pray about it, to fast, uh, to embrace ascetical practice, any, anything that might bring healing to that relationship or break down the loss of love that has come between ourselves and others. And uh, I think Erasmo Maricacus, who the, the handout that I gave you, uh, is even a little bit more challenging than Guardini in this regard that our uh, unity and commun communion with one another is a reflection of the unity that exists within the Holy Trinity itself. It is to be a reflection of divine love. And that gives us a sense of how radical, radically we must be engaged in our own spiritual life and the radical sense of self-honesty that we have to have. Are we really living a life that is reflective uh, of the mysteries that we are celebrating and participating in at the altar. We often can uh, come to Mass in kind of a passive way, 
receiving something that we feel or believe is important to us. We might even be cultivating in some way uh, a prayer life and a love for Christ. But we can't do this, Guardini is telling us, in a way that is abstracted from our neighbor. In some ways, it is to falsify, to make a lie, what it is that we are celebrating at the altar. If we come there not conscious of the divisions that separate us from others and are at least working in some form or fashion to overcome them or bring about healing. Uh, Guardini isn't sort of flippant about this in any kind of way. I think he understands how difficult it is to bring healing uh, to relationships, especially where there uh, wound, deep wounds exist. Uh, I think uh, for him, what is most Im important is uh, what is going on within the human heart. Are we bringing ourselves to the mass, to the liturgy, uh, with the desire to love as Christ has loved us? And so with the desire for healing. So often we, we can grow comfortable I think with the divisions that exist between ourselves and others. Well, that, that person uh, you know, irritates me or has been a source of grief in the past, and so we can sort of push them out of mind or push them to the margins of our life. And we can sort of rationalize for ourselves and make that an acceptable reality. As long as we're leading a good life or we're basically good per people, we don't feel that there's any obstacle there for us. Certainly not one that would require us to leave our gift and go be reconciled with the other before we would come and celebrate the Mass. And certainly those in Jesus' time would have found this to be an incredible saying, because it's also tied to our Lord's breaking down of all uh, social barriers that would have existed during the time as well. Uh, the whole idea of loving uh, your enemy would have been extended as far as uh, one's fellow Jew, uh, you know, one who is part uh, of one's cultural uh, community who shared the faith. but. Uh, uh, even if that was achieved, uh, certainly uh, pagans and Gentiles were not included in, as part of that group. Gentile dog, uh, or pagan dog, you know, these, these were the, the, the phrases that were commonly used uh, for those who did not share, share the faith. And we see Christ break that down in an absolute kind of fashion on the cross and uh, certainly in the gift of himself in the Holy Eucharist. And so that places upon us an extraordinary responsibility. How deep is our love? And do we have it in our mind, even at Mass, when we are participating in the penitential uh, part of the Mass, the, when we're saying the Confidio, or when we're asking for God's forgiveness, or are we also asking for forgiveness for those who are parts of the, of the body of Christ as well? Are we uh, acknowledging our, our fault in the breakdown of those relationships and asking God for, to heal them as well? Or are we simply focused upon ourselves and the sins and the struggles that, that we have individually? And this is what Guardini will go on in the, the months and months come as we read through his reflections. The things that, that become impediments to us would be in a kind of individualism in our approach to the Mass. You know, that we put on blinders and want to put on blinders to everyone around us. I think 
we've often joked about it here before, even the sign of peace is something that is, uh, can be, that people can find to be very difficult or, or the kiss of peace, even, you know, something that would involve uh, um, even a much more uh, personal embrace seems to be something off-putting. We think more of a cold that we could possibly get than the expression of uh, our unity with each other. I remember posting uh, online a picture of a, a Russian anti-bear suit that had all these like jagged knives that's sticking out of them to pe protect yourself from the bear. And I put it on there as sort of like an anti-sign of the peace uh, uh, form of dress. And I think I got the most responses to that to the point that I had to remove it because it became embarrassing as a priest that so many people were agreeing, well, yes, let's get rid of the sign of peace from the mass. Uh, I think after reading Guardini, we won't be able to say that quite so easily. So let's go on to, to Guardini's words themselves. The word congregation does not mean a gathering of many people, not even of many pious and reverent people, even in such a group that, that unifying, simultaneously fortifying and fervent quality, which is the essence of the true congregation might be lacking. Christ defines it. For where two or three are gathered together for my sake, there I am in the midst of them, Matthew 18, 20. The Acts of the Apostles gives more details in its report on the days following Pentecost. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread in their houses, they took their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and being, favor, being in favor with all the people, Acts 2, 46 through 47. And so already within the scriptures, we, we find here uh, a, a definite push to uh, elevate the unity that exists among us, both in the example of the early Christians, Christian community, and in Christ's teaching, Christ teachings uh, themselves. We know that even early on, that began to break down among them. Uh, we you know Paul had to rebuke the communities that he had uh, brought to the faith because of, of uh, similar disunity. Uh, but nonetheless, it, this is what we were called to embrace. He goes on by saying, a congregation then exists when a number of people disciplined by faith and conscious of their membership in Christ gather to celebrate the sacred mysteries. Even then it does not follow effortlessly. There are a few exceptions when it does seem uh, to, for instance, when an oppressive need or a powerful joy spontaneously fills and fuses all hearts, or when the words of an inspired teacher have moved the, the hearers to genuine Christian unitas, making of the many individuals one great body drawn by the same power to the same end. And so the beauty of the liturgy itself, uh, the, the beauty of the chant can be something that unifies everybody in terms of the focus on what's going on at the altar or a great preacher who captures the essence of the gospel in such a powerful way that he inflames the desire and the devotion uh, for the Lord within the hearts of his listeners as well as for the unity that exists among them. Or he even says here, times of crisis or trial can bind the congregation together 
in, in a very deep way in their prayer. Their prayer becomes powerfully one at that moment. We all remember uh, the time after 9-11. The churches were very, very full, uh, partly over the sorrow of what had happened, but also fear. And so the churches were packed uh, and had a very clear focus in regards to uh, the petition that they were seeking at that point. But these things, Guardini goes on to tell us, can, can break down very quickly and certainly uh, even in and of themselves aren't the essence of the unity that exists among us. We've already seen him emphasize the, the phrase two times here, in Christ, that our deepest, most radical bond comes in and through the person of Christ himself, that he's the one who can establish this divine unity among us. So it's not something that we create. Our will, Guardini will show us, has to be fully involved in this, that it's not effortless here. We have to prepare ourselves in mind and heart, but even in our daily engagements with each other, we must strive and even agonize to, to uh, help foster this unity. But primarily, it is guaranteed and comes to us only through the person of Christ. Many things can help. The solemnity of the room, organ music, the power of the divine word, the earnestness and mystery of the sacred ceremony. But these can only help. They cannot do everything from the standpoint of our personal responsibility. And they are unable to achieve even the main thing. For a congregation must be possible also without these, in uninspiring surroundings, with the feeblest music or none at all, with the sacred word inadequately proclaimed, a divine service to which all possible human shortcomings cling. Above all, if there is to be a congregation, the believers must know what a congregation is. They must desire it and actively strive to attain it. So very easily, and certainly I think over the past couple of generations, we've seen all the things that Gordini mentions here take place, a breakdown of all the things that sort of make the liturgy uh, uh, beautiful or create a sense of transcendence that lift the mind and the heart to God. The, the music often isn't very good. The priest often preaches a subpar a homily, if he preaches one at all, there's often great distraction uh, uh, among the congregation itself, so very little silence or peace to be found, not a very prayerful uh, uh, sense of and the sense of surroundings, I think, can be, we've seen, diminished too by uh, uh, sort of modern architecture, that often it is uninspiring in, in comparison, uh, certainly, to previous generations. But regardless of this, Gordini tells us that we have to strive to enter into the celebration of the Mass with a very clear sense of what we bring to that and what we are doing to foster the sense of a congregation and its unity. Often these things become a source of division for us, not just they don't simply diminish the sense of unity that we have with each other, they actively diminish it because we let it on some level. Uh, not that we should lack concern uh, for, for those things, but too often I think we allow them to become a source of anger or hostility uh, that easily wells up within our hearts and can ru ruin the celebration of the Mass for us. We can be so steaming 
over something that we lose sight of the, the bigger picture, as it were. Okay. Before I go on, would anyone like to make a comment or have any questions about where Guardini is leading us at this point? No comments about Latin or at Orientum? We usually go in that direction, but I'm not pushing us. <laughs> okay, so we come now to his main point here, which I think is the most important, certainly, for us to meditate upon. He writes, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says, therefore, if thou art offering thy gift at the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother has anything against thee, Leave thy gift before the altar and go first to be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. This means when you go to mass and you recall that you have been unjust to someone and that he bears you a grudge, you cannot simply walk into a church as though nothing were wrong for then you would be entering only the physical room of the building, not the congregation which would not receive you as you would destroy it by your mere presence. A congregation is the sacred coherence which links person to person as it links God to men and men to God. And that last little phrase I think is, is important for us that we don't want to abstract it from what God has done for us and what he has revealed to us in, the, in his son that it links God to men and men to God uh, and person to person, that there we have to see very in a very conscious way the link between the two, what is going on in our relationships with others and what God has created between ourselves and him, that the unity that we are to be seeking with each other has to be a divine unity. And so that means uh, leading a life of radical conversion, a life of uh, repentance, uh, of humility, the ability to acknowledge the ways that we have hurt others through our words or through our indifference, uh, through our, our lack of charity towards them, our unwillingness to forgive. Uh, it's not an easy thing for us to do and yet, every time that we walk into church, this should be on our minds and our hearts, that we're not walking into a group like this, or into a lecture hall at the, at the university, or into a stadium, that we're walking into a congregation that is made one with their Lord and God, and that we're participating in a mystery that, that lifts us up and in a sense deifies us. It draws us into the very life of the most holy trinity. And so to enter into that, uh, failing to be cognizant of what's going on in our relationship, uh, not simply cheapens what is, is going on there, but it defiles it, Gordini is telling us. That not to, to feel that or not to be pierced to the heart by those realities and not be responding to that on some level uh, in, in some ways, it's uh, a, defound, a profound defilement of what's taking place at the altar. How do we celebrate 
the, the sacrifice through which we are made one with God, if we lack within us the same desire to have that unity with each other and that we're not willing to do for others what Christ has done for us, that he put himself in the lowest position in order to reconcile us to God. And often we aren't willing uh, to stoop in the smallest way, to humble ourselves in the smallest way in our relationships with others in order to maintain charity, even in, in, the, in the least, uh, least measure. And we can get comfortable with that. I think we can become hardened uh, in it over time. We can rationalize it because often there are good reasons for it in our mind where relationships have fallen apart or where we've suffered at the hands of others. Sometimes uh, the breakdown in those relationships have lasted decades. And, uh, and so, especially when they've lasted for a long time or if the person is out of sight, it's easily, all, easy also to put them out of mind altogether. And without our realizing that that has an impact upon how fully we enter into the celebration of the Mass. And so there is something about, I think, Guardini's writing here that should be deeply challenging for us and even unsettle us, discomfort us, discomfort us in some, some measure that uh, we can't cross the threshold uh, of the church without, allow, without making ourselves think about what is going on in our life as a whole. We can't abstract what takes place on Sunday with what's going on during the rest of our, our week. Uh, you know, sometimes it's even driving the church that the breakdown in that relationship <laughs> takes place. You know, the, the, I've heard more than one parent tell me that the whole ride here we were screaming at each other and screaming at the kids. And, and so it's, it, it's a very real struggle uh, that uh, Guardini is putting before us. And wanting us, though, to frame it in a particular kind of way, of acknowledging uh, that we are called to something far greater. And, but the also, I think he wants us to be able to see that we also have access to a grace that allows us to enter into that struggle for unity that is greater than something that simply arises out of our natural virtue or the goodness of our personality or even our natural desire for that kind of unity, that we're given a, 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 a grace that comes from on high to be able to struggle uh, in a very deep way with this. Even again, if it's on the level of repentance and personal conversion or interceding on behalf of the individual with whom we, we have a division, praying for their well-being, praying that God would bless them, all these can shape and soften the heart, our hearts towards others that we can allow to grow cold over time and allow ourselves to even to forget them altogether. And this is perhaps isn't something that we think too often about. I think we're often more focused, again, upon even in our day-to-day -day spiritual life upon ourselves to the neglect of how we are engaging those around us. And I think in our day and age, uh, we're seeing uh, the way that we communicate with each other and even how the, the way that we deal with differences of opinion becomes violent very quickly. And not just violent language, we see you know, people killing each other over a disagreement about something. And, uh, 
and just because they fe felt like that. There was nothing, no sense of morality that came into play there uh, for them in making that decision. And we can't delude ourselves into thinking that we, we are so far above that. We're incapable of that level of anger or hatred or resentment of others or hatred of the world that we would be incapable of doing that. We always have to say there but the grace of God go I when we witness certain things. And uh, if we allow this anger to get hold of us and if we neglect it, it's not as though it remains in the static form within our hearts that uh, anger and hatred and resentment towards others tends to fester over time and uh, diminish our capacity to love others and to love God as well. And I think this is why, you know, certainly Jesus in the gospel hammers on it so hard, but the Guardini as well, and then uh, Merikakis, whom we'll turn to here in a few moments. Okay. I didn't get to the end of that paragraph, though, did I? Where did I end up here? With the word God, right? It is the unity of men in Christ, in the living Christ, in the midst of them, before the countenance of his Father, in the efficacy of the Holy Spirit. But if you have wronged your brother and he has a grudge against you, a wall rises between you and him which excludes you from the sacred unity. Then as far as you are concerned, congregation ceases to exist. It is your responsibility to restore it by removing the impediment between you and your brother. And so certainly when we are the ones who are responsible for that breakdown, the responsibility is ours. But in doing some reading, I don't know if it was in Maricacus or, or if it's in Cordini himself, that even when that situation is flipped on its head and we are the ones who uh, have had wrong done to us, that we have an equal responsibility to seek to be reconciled. And so it's not simply if we've hurt somebody else, it's just if they've hurt us, we have to seek to be reconciled and to offer forgiveness. And again, you know, that can require our doing a kind of violence to our, ourselves. Uh, the kingdom of he heaven suffers violence and the violent bear it away. That at times we really have to force ourselves compel ourselves to address the things that in our mind we really don't want to deal with because they're so painful. That uh, certainly uh, having betrayed someone or wounded them deeply, it's, it can be very difficult for, for us to acknowledge that op openly and then to approach them. And again, Guardini isn't pushing that in sort of an impulsive kind of way, but it's hard for us even often to address that uh, in terms of our, our prayer life. And certainly when someone's wounded us, we often don't want anything to do with them and we feel justified in pushing them away or, or falling into uh, what Guardini mentioned in a previous paragraph, a kind of uh, surface friendliness. You know, we can go on nicely like that, you know, bearing graciously with each other, but really not having any love for, for the other. So we can be kind on the surface, but within have no love for the other person. And we can tell ourselves that's okay, you know, because we're, no harm is coming. You know, we just have to get along is, is the kind of thing that we'll tell ourselves. 
And so before I open up for questions, I just want to read the first paragraph. And that's all we'll look at here tonight from Maricaucus, because it is uh, three and a half pages long. But uh, I wanted you to have it. But uh, I thought he, in a, just an extraordinary way, helps us to even go a little deeper. He writes, the material gift offered to God to fulfill a ritual prescription suddenly becomes the symbol of the human heart, which is the real gift the external sacrifice intends an authentic religion. But the pious rite that is to be transacted between the individual and his God cannot be completed if the memory of a rift with one's brother intervenes. On the way to the altar, the gift must be dropped not a minute more can pass. Reconduction cannot be left for later. The impediment to sacrifice and hence the right relationship with God and worship, what had been objectified as ritual impurity before the coming of Christ, now becomes impediment of the memory of the consciousness of disharmony with one's brother. So interesting, isn't it, that among the Jews and their worship, <clears throat> what was attended to was a kind of ritual purity that they would keep themselves from coming into contact that, with things that would make them impure or coming into contact with individuals that would make them impure. So that as long as they were fulfilling all the ritual prescriptions of the law, then they felt comfortable in coming and offering sacrifice to God. Suddenly in Christ, everything becomes internalized. It's the offering of our hearts along with the offering of the Son to the Father. And so we cannot uh, distance ourselves in, in any way. And I thought the, the last line there was the most important. Now becomes the impediment of the memory of the consciousness of disharmony uh, with one's brother. That this uh, should be far more challenging for us than ritual impurity was uh, for the Jews of old that in our participation in the sacrifice of the Mass, we know the, the, the preciousness of the gift that's offered and what we are uniting with that gift on the altar, that it is our heart, ourself. And so if we bear hatred within us towards another person, then we are hobbling ourselves then in our capacity to offer true worship to God. And so our memory should be something that is constantly, as it were, pricking our conscience, telling us that greater conversion is needed, greater prayer is needed. That even if we can't physically bring about that re reconciliation, that within our hearts, we certainly can. We can be letting go. We can be, as it were, wiping the dust of our feet from past wounds off of, our, off of ourselves in order that we might then approach that, that altar worthily, that we're not carrying anything in with us of, of hatred, of disrespect, of unkindness towards another person. And so you can see the kind of watchfulness of heart, the interior life that is being put before us here. The, there is a radical kind of asceticism that is needed, especially surrounding our celebration uh, of the Holy Eucharist. Again, we, we often think about asceticism uh, in an individualistic kind of way. You know, our struggle with our own particular sins, passions, and so we will pray, we will fast, we, we will study the scriptures or read the fathers. 
but we rarely will take into consideration the, the unity of the congregation and our unity with others, at least in terms of how we're engaging in those, those practices. We might in some ways, say in the confessional, we might acknowledge it, but in terms of our daily discipline and our ascetical life, the, way, the things that we fast for, the things that we pray for, this should be center stage where we see if, this, if the, our faith is about love and a self-emptying love, then this uh, breakdown in love in our relationships should take center stage in our, our spiritual life. It can't be an abstract, abstract notion of holiness that we have. It has to be something that's deeply personal and relational. And if we fail to do that, then we are, are entering into the most profound mystery of all in, in an unworthy fashion. Merikakis goes on to say, you cannot present your heart to God as a gift offering on the altar of sacrifice if that heart is turned against God's other children. The way to union with God in worship cannot lead away from your brother. It is impossible for me to be a child of God without being a brother of all those others for whom Christ died. I cannot love and adore God, and at the same time hate and exclude God's children from my life. I cannot at once love and hate Christ. Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection mean that he has become inseparable from those he came to redeem. And so, can't exclude any other person for whom Christ died. We cannot love and hate Christ at the same time. So what Merikakis is telling us is that in our mind, every person that we encounter has to be Christ for us. And that can't simply be those within our little circle, and it can't even be those with, which we, with, with whom we have a little bit of conflict. It, it, can, even, it even has to be with those uh, who we would consider our enemies or have inflicted great harm upon us. I mentioned earlier 9-11 and how that sort of focused everybody at mass uh, on what was going on. And it was interesting that that day the reading, I think I've mentioned this before, the reading was from Paul, the first reading, and it was telling us whenever you encounter evil in your life or in the world, your first thing should be to engage in intercession, supplication, all forms of prayer. So our response to, in the face of evil in the world should be greater conversion and repentance. But I think already in our minds and in the minds of many people in the face of what took place at 9-11 was what is our response going to be, not spiritually to this reality, but militarily? How, how, what are we going to do in, in the face of this terrible evil? And I'm not suggesting that there should be no response there, but on the part of men and women of faith, our first response should be what is being spoken about here tonight. Our first response to evil should be, turned to, be to turn to he who is good, the perfection of goodness, the perfection of love. This is where we come to see the truth about how we are to respond to others, even those who have made themselves our enemies or those that we have, have wounded. 
always greater and greater conversion and repentance on our part. We cannot allow ourselves the luxury then as Christian men and women to have enemies because we know that it directly affects the way that we worship and, and that there's such a radical union that comes through the Holy Eucharist that to hate another is to hate Christ. That we can't allow ourselves, as it were, to receive the, receive the Holy Eucharist because we would be re receiving it in a way that is sacrilegious. And so we often hear this and think about it in terms of uh, receiving the, the, uh, the, the Eucharist in an unworthy fashion. You know what Paul says, he, and, he who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks to his own condemnation. And immediately we think of those things in, in our mind that uh, again are more individual sins uh, that have to do with our day-to-day -day life. You know, greed or you know, sensuality that has gone awry, all those uh, kinds of things. But we rarely think about the, the breakdown or the wounds that exist within relationships and the impact that that has upon the way that we, the direct impact that that has on the way that we relate to Christ. And in some sense, it's far more profound and should be given far more attention than what we often give to the other things. Not that they should be ignored, we should be struggling with those, but where there's a breakdown of love, we are radically, we are acting in a way that is in radical contradiction to what we are celebrating. So a kind of schizophrenia begins to exist there. There's a break in, in our perception of reality, of what it is that we are doing, when we allow that to be perpetuated within our own hearts. It's like we are living in an alt alternative reality to the one that, that Christ has established. And again, I think that re requires from us a, a radical self-honesty that is only born of deep prayer and, and the ascetical life. Uh, what, what is going to allow us to, to look at ourselves with this kind of honesty, but then also seek to bring healing where there is only brokenness and division? Okay. So the rest from uh, Maricacus is for you to just take with you. It's an extended reflection on it. It's all as beautiful as this, but uh, we just don't have the time to do both tonight. But any comments on either uh, what Guardini has had to say or what Maricacus has laid before us? Erasmo is a great, great name. Any thoughts or comments? Yes. I, this is so helpful because I mean, I think we all get into these situations all the time. And um, knowing that um, you're, in a way, um, you know, saying no to Christ, if we harbor these feelings against someone, really motivates you to get rid of them. So it's, this has been very helpful. Right. I think both of these men provide us with the most powerful examination of conscience. You know, that even with this one thing, it, it forces us to go very deep within our own hearts to, to look honestly at the things that we struggle, struggle with the most. Yes. Um, when you're involved in a situation where um, there is a, a deep hurt or 
uh, you know, someone has hurt you and uh, or maybe wrecked your career or whatever, mm-hmm. I-, I guess, you know, the fact of the purity of going to Mass, at that one time, you can't, uh, or can you, um, or how does it look, maybe, with, with my question, that you, you go in and you're angry because this has been done to you, and you don't like people that have done this to you. Well, you can't, I, I don't see how you can be so purified at that time. It's more that you go into the, the mass to try to get the help. Is that the start of what you're trying to purify? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're so angry that this has happened to you, you know, it could be, um, a, a man and wife marital situation or someone has wrecked your career, mm-hmm. your job, and you need the help to try to purify that? Is- right. right. I think humility is always the first step for us, which is, is, has been often defined as truthful living, that we're able to acknowledge the truth of that wound and that even it's given rise to a deep anger and hatred perhaps within our hearts. And that's already the, the first step to healing because to acknowledge the truth is to acknowledge Christ. So it is in a fundamental way to turn to him. And again, you know, Gordini isn't being simplistic here. I think he would tell a person that you would go to mass because there's grace that, is, that comes to us in our participation in it. But there might be times say, when we are in the fever of that anger and hostility, and we say we've even been nurturing it or nursing it, that it's taken over our consciousness, that we might refrain from receiving Holy Communion, that we are not in, we don't have the mind and the heart to enter into it fully, that that perhaps the the healing that is needed first uh, would come to us through the sacrament of confession that we often forget, forget uh, and we fail to understand that confession is a healing sacrament. And so we, we would want to turn to confession. I would say, you know, this would be an unpopular thing to say today, but more frequently than we receive Holy Communion, that it is the healing sacrament that allows us to enter into the celebration of the Eucharist in such a way that that grace, which, which is also a healing sacrament for us, can bear the greatest of fruit. But it is the relationship in which we, it is the expression of that relationship where we find the deepest intimacy. There's a consummation that takes place there between the bride and the bridegroom. And so if in some way, because of our internal struggle, we've separated ourselves from the bride, as it were, then we may need to struggle with that, seek out the healing that the church offers through confession, uh, spend time in prayer in order that the heatedness of the anger might dissipate, and then it would be appropriate then to go to communion to receive the strength that we need then to deal with the longer term, perhaps wounds that have been inflicted upon us. Uh, but we often will neglect that, you know, the, the order of things there that bring us the greatest amount of healing. And reading uh, these two texts in the way that we have tell us that 
There's a fundamental reality that exists there as congregation that we never enter into, the, into that reality in, in, in an individualistic kind of way, as seeing ourselves as separated from the body or from the bride of Christ. And so if that has been broken down in some way, we need to find a way where that we can be reunited to that body. If we've been wounded and that wound has given rise to a, a deep anger or hatred within us, then we take hold of the grace that comes to us in and through the sacrament of confession in order then that our entering, we can enter into that union and communion once again to be strengthened even more, to find it within ourselves to deal with the anger that is, is within our hearts. And I think Philip Neri understood this. You know, when he saw the breakdown of the faith in Rome, you know, and during the Counter-Reformation, where he began was with the sacraments, but in particular, the sacrament of confession. That he had people going to him uh, every week, multiple times a week, some even daily. And, and before they would, and then he would give them permission when to receive Holy Communion. Some would receive weekly, some would receive a couple times a week, some daily, get, depending upon the state of their soul, depending upon uh, how they were living their life. That's why it was so important to have a regular confessor who would know that uh, about them, who could guide them in such a way. But he began with confession, knowing that we need to experience that healing on this fundamental level before we seek the higher levels of intimacy there, that we want to enter into it not only worthily, but that it might bear the greatest fruit for us spiritually. And I think we've gotten away from this altogether, that, that sense of you know, the way that we would prioritize things, the way that we would understand our relationship, not only to Christ, but to the church as a whole, and how we would want to be reconciled. And now I think the opposite of people feel guilty about not going up to receive Holy Communion because they don't want anybody to see them not receiving Holy Communion. And so it's not become anymore about the state of one's soul or the relationship that one has with the congregation, the body, but it has more to do with reputation, how one is going to be seen by others because they did not receive. Well, we should expect that in our lives, you know, that at times we are not going to be fully prepared, either because we are distracted or we've fallen into a particular sin or that we're struggling mighty with something like we've been talking about here tonight. And this is why you had someone like uh, St. John Paul II go to confession every single day of his life, you know, because he was Pope. And the responsibility that he carried on, on his shoulders, you know, both as, as priests, but then also servant of all the faithful, you know, he knew that he needed to be healed on this deep and profound level in order that he might carry that well. And uh, so across, you know, Guardini isn't speaking here to the laity as somehow abstracted from a priest. He's speaking to all of us as Christians here. And for those who celebrate the mass who are responsible, who lead the community and have been ordained to offer the holy sacrifice, the mass should be going regularly, if not.
daily. And that might, I think to the modern mind, that seems obsessive. And probably, they would probably even be told by priests, you're being obsessive in doing this, or you're, you're being uh, scrupulous in doing so. And that, that can be true. Sometimes people can be obsessive compulsive and struggle then with the thought of having received mercy from God. But I think our lack of a sense of need for that comes from our lack of reflection upon our true spiritual state. And when you read something like, and reflect upon something in the way that we are tonight, you begin to see, ah, uh, you know, the care that I have to give to my heart and the, the care with which I must prepare myself to receive Holy Communion has to be the most important thing in my life. And I have to begin to live my life from communion to communion, aware of the, the relationship that I exist in with God and with those around me so that I don't falsify the greatest mystery that God has called, called me to participate in. So, you know, all of a sudden our perception of reality begins to change. How is it, what do, how do we live our life? What does our life mean? What, what's the nature of our relationship with each other? You know, the importance of our speech, our words, how we talk to others. All of a sudden, all of that become, becomes framed in light of the most holy trinity and the means through which we come to participate in that reality, the mass. Think about the depth of the conversion, how one would be living their life if we were conscious of that at every moment of the day. Do I see another hand, James? So, any concerns about what, does it seem too extreme to you? No. It is challenging, yes. Well, I guess one thing is that it just becomes, I mean, it's gonna, it kind of ties into the, con the confession thing. It's like if, if you start thinking in, in terms of that kind of more everyday confession, then it becomes, I mean, the, 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 at least I know for me, the fear is like, well, if I start thinking about sin that deeply, then, you know, it's like, it's like, it's one thing if you keep it at a level of like mortal sin, you know, like, mm -hmm. well, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm pretty clear, you know, I didn't haven't committed any grave sins. But uh, if you start thinking in terms yeah. of, you know, those smaller, right. um, you, know, this, you know, quote unquote, smaller sins, yeah. uh, that, you know, then it becomes a much more, you know, yeah. the way you have to evaluate your whole life. Yeah changes. Well, I think even the fact that we call them smaller sins yeah. is sort of prob problematic. But I think there is a profound resistance within us. The same resistance that exists when it comes to praying. Because we think, well, if I give myself over to prayer in this way, what will my life become? I'll be unrecognizable and God might ask me to do something that I don't want to do. You know, that there might be some cross that he asked me to carry or he might ask me to become a religious, you know, and so we pray, but perhaps we never respond to the call of grace to enter into that relationship more deeply. And the call of grace also to examine our hearts more and more deeply as well. And so we'll go on the surface level, even when we go to frequent confession, we might find ourselves uh, saying the same things over and over again, but often they're the things that we are comfortable saying. 
I'm glad that we've moved back a little bit more to behind the screen. Like here, we have we don't allow the option anymore. Uh, it's all behind the screen because I think it gives people freedom to go deeper and to say what's on their mind and what they might be more uncomfortable talking about. It's not as, you know, people will often hold back, you know, partly out of fear, partly out of a sense of shame, and certainly dealing with things like this where there's been perhaps a longstanding breakdown in a relationship. Uh, it can be a hard thing for a person to talk about and they might not want to in the context of con confession or anywhere else. James. So without impugning anything you said about frequent confession and right. efficacy of confession, mm -hmm. and confession of the young sacrament and all this, this right. all true, obviously, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's another, uh, you know, the church also says that, that the reception of Holy Communion um, is mm -hmm. Uh, an ordinary way for the forgiveness and healing right. of angel sins. Right. The church herself makes a distinction. So we right. could say, well, little little sins, we shouldn't call them that. Right. But okay. in reality, the you know, the, yeah. we get that not from ourselves, but the church makes right. these distinctions. Right? right. So, and then there's also an which I think is problematic on one level. I I, I agree with the distinction, but how I I have problems with how it's taught. Right. And okay. So how it's applied. Yeah. Like, ah, well, the venial sins are really, you know, are, are irrelevant. Yeah, and whatever. yeah, that nobody, yeah. people rarely ever commit a mortal sin. You know, I think well, is what is often answer. said. Sure. Yeah. You know? right. So all that's very important too. Mm -hmm. That you would really discern. Right. You know, if you are in mortal sin, you know, if you, and all those things. Right. Uh, and then the other thing that strikes me is that, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of the way Cardini is, is articulating things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I almost am afraid that he's being a little too subjectivistic mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, you can have all kinds of passions, mm -hmm. all kinds of feelings mm -hmm. that are raging inside of you, mm -hmm. all right, but that don't necessarily touch you at the level of the will. Right. And it's at the level of the will mm -hmm. that, you know, you can do virtuous acts, that right. you love, and that you forgive, right. right? So you can have a very firm mm -hmm. purpose, of, you know, will to forgive, right. but still have a lot of raw, intense negative emotion right. and I would be concerned that if a person was was experiencing those right. things that that in itself would be a, um, an impediment for them to approach right. the sacrament. No, it's a very good point and he does address it in the coming paragraphs that often the movement of the heart, the acknowledgement of the heart, the desire for healing is in and of itself enough, you know, in the sense of uh, freeing a person uh, and uh, overcoming that impediment. That again, you know, he's not being simplistic. There are wounds that are often very deep or sometimes ways that we allow that anger or hatred to fester where it would be a graver kind of sin. And so you're right, there might be times where we struggle with a kind of annoyance or irritation with someone that's a passing kind of thing and that the ordinary means through which that would be forgiven and healed would be through our reception of Holy Communion. That we didn't foster it, we didn't act out on it, you know, in terms of treating somebody poorly or insulting them or something along those lines, but it, they were thoughts that were strong that came in and out of our mind and we, you know, tried to struggle with them as much as we could. But uh, I think that's where then the penitential rite of the Mass too 
is our acknowledgement of that, that we acknowledge our poverty and our need for forgiveness and we ask for it in order that God would prepare us to celebrate the holy mysteries. So you're right. I mean, we don't want to be uh, unyielding or harsh in this. Uh, I think the, the value though of it being so stark, at least in the beginning of our discussion, I think is, is that it wakes us up to its importance. You know, sort of like a bucket of cold water. And I think we can, you know, then begin to make the distinctions that are, are necessary, but uh, point well taken. And, you know, I think early on, maybe I've been a little zealous in my expression of it, but uh, he does, and we'll see him, you know, uh, directly say, you know, I'm not trying to be harsh here or unrealistic you know, in regards to the nature of those wounds and the nature of those grudges. Okay, but good thought. Yeah, I don't, don't want people all of a sudden to feel trepidation every time they come to church. Well, that was a past one time when I saw an extraordinary vision of what you did neglect to use the sacred Purell. That is hideous. I don't know how you put up with that. <laughs> without having a stroke. You know, in flu season, you know, it, it, it almost becomes a grave sin unless they, that's used. Jim, you always have to take it a step further. <laughs> okay, do I see a hand up? Yeah. Um, along the same lines mm -hmm. that James was speaking, um, I think if, if you become aware of the little sins and you have an opportunity to go to confession and you don't because you're relying on the penitential right, which I've talked to a lot of people and they just straight up do. They rely on that penitential right when they have a, an opportunity to go because it's not a mortal sin. Yeah. So they don't feel a need to confess it. And I think what is done at the oratory and what is starting to seem like it's starting a flow mm -hmm. through a lot of other churches is always offering confession before mass. It's such a, a valuable thing. Um, right. You know, it, and right. you I said the Latin mass, so I'm gonna bring it up, but yeah. there is a constant, constant flow of sure. penitence at that yeah. church. And right. that was kind of what drew me to it. When I saw the vestibule mm -hmm. filled with people mm -hmm. going to confession, when I first went in, I thought, wow, I'm home. I'm one of these, you know, that needs this. Yeah. And I think that's where the, why we would want to connect in our mind what we have here tonight and also to clarify in our mind that confession is a healing sacrament and that does prepare us even for a more fruitful reception of, of the Holy Eucharist. And, but that has to be expressed in concrete, tangible ways within the life of the church. We have to be saying and showing that this is something of value and importance by having our priest present in the sacrament. The problem is, is that so often priests have been told you have to be this or that rather than what you've been ordained to do. And so over time, we've seen times for confession shrink, shrink down to 20 minutes before one mass on the weekend or by appointment, which nobody, I've never heard or very rarely have heard somebody call up and say, I'd like to go to confession, you know, because most people like the an anonymity. And so you have to communicate its value by offering it frequently. And as priest, you have to be willing to sit there in the, on the occasions when nobody comes so that they know that you're there. And 
you know, it's, it's, it's the same way with adoration. The more you offer, the more people come to it. And the more times that you offer for confession, the more people come. We have people come from an hour away to go to confession because they know that it's going to be available, that there will be two confessors in there and that they won't get caught at the end of the line and have the light go blank and not get to go to confession. You know, that there would be priests that are willing to stay overtime or a second priest available there. We could offer, to be honest with you, if, if, if we ever got to the point, we could have a priest or two do nothing but hear confessions. We could say, we're going to make confessions available all day long. And uh, no doubt, a lot of those hours would get filled. There would be times that you'd be sitting and praying alone in your divine office, but it would probably become something like Padre Pio or Philip Neri or John Vianney, where people would be coming 16 hours a day because of the fruit that it would bear in their life. They would come to see the value of it. And priests would see the value of it too because there's a particular grace that comes to them by being present in the sacrament and participating in the sacrament. And often priests don't think about it. They see it as an, an extra labor that they don't have time for, they're too busy for, and so it gets pushed off to the margins. And they, they feel they do that by necessity. You know, they're driven so hard, and in many ways they are today. I mean, with having five parishes to take care of. But, you know, again, that can be a, a reasonable lie. It's an excuse from the charge of the priesthood, which is to make yourself available for the administration of the sacraments. So we could come up with every good reason in the book for it, but it's still a lie that we're not fulfilling our, our priestly role and identity. I think also the more the faithful go, the more you see a need to go. You know, when, when you think that the Pope right. was going every day, the righteous man sins seven times a day. Right. So at the end of the day, I'm thinking, okay, I did at least seven things wrong today because well, I'm not a righteous person. I think so, that's the reality, that it, that it sharpens and sensitizes the conscience that allows us to go ever, ever deeper. And I think we were talking earlier, how does one get to a sense of this, you know, to be aware of this on a deep level, especially when often there is that fundamental resistance. And I think it is through regular confession that we approach it again and again, and we be also begin to see it and struggle with it more in our day-to-day -day life. And so need know the need of, our great, need of God's grace in that battle. And so we bring it to confession, even if it's not a mortal sin, we know that this is where we're being wounded and need, need strength. So, God willing, we'll continue to move in that, that direction. So even though that we're running out of space, you could, we could continue to pray for vocations for the, for the Lord over here. Any other thoughts before we move on? Yes. Let's just make a point real quick that um, something I've talked to friends about and I've gone to myself is um, kind of on the good side of the coin to um, like scrupulosity is mm -hmm. um, presumption. So right. if you're in a habit where you go to confession, you know, maybe on a weekly basis or even a daily basis, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've seen it, a possibility where, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're faced with a decision, you say, okay, I know I'm going to confession on a regular basis. So it would be easy to let this one slide because I know I'm going to confession. Right. And maybe you are, you know, truly sorrowful for it right. and very aware of it, but mm -hmm. still having a lack of um, 
willingness mm -hmm. to make proper resolutions. Right. Yeah. I think that often arises too out of false counsel. You know, an attempt for priests to do pastoral, but they'll tell people, well, as long as you have the intent to go to confession, go ahead and receive communion. As if oh, any priest has really the authority to say that. No priest has, can tell somebody that because basically you're telling them to go against their conscience at that point. Uh, so, you know, I think part of this also then tells us the importance of uh, a regular confessor. Not that, that a person should be bound to that. They should be free to go whenever they need to. But there is a value. You know, Philip had people who went, went to confession him for 30, 40 years. Uh, or 30, 40 would be stretching it because he probably, no, probably 40 years. But 30, 30 years. And you think about that, how well uh, a priest would get to know his penitent at that point and would be able to be a, a true guide. And if they were struggling, excuse me, stuttering. So if they were struggling with uh, scrupulosity, he could help them with that. Or if they were struggling with uh, the presumption, he would be able to see that and offer some counsel as well. And it, it is, I think when you're a priest and you have the opportunity is given to you to hear confessions a lot, you, become, you, you begin to see the beauty of it over time. It's hard. Sometimes you walk out of there and you're exhausted. You know what speed dating is? You know how they, they move from person table to table? Well, you know, with confession, you know, people are coming in and out and sometimes, you know, it's, they're very moving. You know, even things that would make the priest weep on the other side of the screen, you know, because the, the things that people are struggling with. And so you hear one after another. And so even an hour re requires a lot of grace to stay focused, you know, to be charitable, to be attentive to what's going on and to be a good guide. And, but there is, you know, when you do that over a period of time, you really begin to see the beauty of it and you begin to love confession. And I, I think that's what many priests have lost, you know, that love, they lost the taste for it, the beauty of it and a love for it that would want, make them want to, to go in. Uh, one of our priests is working with a former graduate creating an app to let more people know when there's a priest available in the confession outside of the regularly scheduled time. So they'll be able to look on their phone and say, see, so-and-so is in the confessional from this time to this time. And, uh, or just to let us know that there's a desire to go to confession outside of those times where a priest then could go ahead of time and be waiting there, tell them I'm, I'll be in this confessional. And then they can go and know that the priest will be there. And so are making use of modern technology for <laughs> spiritual good. Who would have thought? <laughs> I mean, where I went to college, there was a, See, this is what we should be hearing. Priests should be hearing from the top down that this, you know, that you're ordained to administer the sacraments. So the things that take priority in your life would be prayer, the administration of the sacraments, then preaching, you know. And love. 
What's that? <laughs> yes. Recycling. Huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see. We have to move on here. Otherwise, I'd... where did I leave off? You cannot? Okay. You cannot very well go about it as the Sermon of the Mount in its divine simplicity advises, simply by dropping everything, going to the one you have wronged, and rectifying things, then returning. There should be a but in here. Perhaps we shouldn't be so hasty with our cannots. We can do much more than we suppose, and our bourgeois, watered-down Christian existence would be strengthened if we more often act with the directness of the believing heart, would simply go and do what love and repentance and magnanimity di dictate. I'm not lauding impulsiveness, and I'm only trying to suggest that reflection is sometimes a hindrance and that often the necessary, truly liberating act is possible only through the power and momentum of the first impulse. That's a very good point. You know, so he's saying on one, one, on one hand, we can't always act with the simplicity and the directness that is indicated in the scriptures, but at other times we should. And we have to be so deeply attuned to the spirit that we can distinguish the two. Sometimes it is demanded. And in particular, I think demanded of, of priests, you know, who are celebrating the mass and who are going to be receiving, you know, that if and you, if you live in community, you should probably be just spend your day running around the house saying, "Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me," you know, in order to be able to celebrate the the mass worthily. But uh, you know, so I think his point here is is well taken that we cannot shelve the grace of God the inspiration of God. And so when our conscience is telling us that before you go to Mass and before you receive communion, you need to be reconciled with the person that you were fighting with. And it might be with a couple who had a fight. And, you know, before Mass, they might say, you know, I'm sorry for saying the things that I said. You know, it certainly might not resolve deeper issues that they might be struggling with, but that intention, that simple movement of acknowledging, I'm, I'm sorry for the things I said, is, as Guardini is telling us here, it would be sufficient then to break down the barrier to our entering into the congregation at that point. And so we don't want to let those moments pass because we could forget it, you know, go about our business, we could just fall into this fierce kind of silence and let that moment pass and not really embrace that as a moment of grace and conversion for ourselves. And sometimes when it's smaller things, it's even more important because, you know, to be faithful in those small things, when we can say to another person, oh, I'm sorry, I, you know, I was angry and I said that, you know, just impulsively, you know, if we're able to do that, then we're preparing the mind, our mind and heart to deal with the more difficult and challenging, you know, things and bre breaches and relationships. So if on a daily basis we can simply say to someone, you know, to humble ourselves, to acknowledge, you know, I shouldn't have said that. Father Paul, I'm sorry. <laughs>
Any thoughts about this paragraph, James? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I like. I like this. Uh, mm -hmm. This. I mean, like not being too romantic, but he, he mm -hmm. does say. You know, I like the idea that he focuses on that, on the issue of timing, and because mm -hmm. it seems like when it comes to our. You know, I can think in my own life. You know, there are wrongs that I've committed in my past. Mm -hmm. You know, where time just kind of went on, and I don't think. The people, you know, the people involved, or you know, would necessarily, you know, harbor a grudge anymore. Right. You know, we could probably have a conversation about it. Right. But at the same time, that only happened through the passage of time, right. and so any real opportunity to actually like derive some kind of like right. a, to be kind of lifted up by by the right. kind of process of forgiveness yeah. um, and of you know. Right. Um, contrition mm -hmm. is kind of past right because like i can't just go back now and be like by the way you know there was this mm -hmm. thing i mean it, I, maybe i could but it, it it won't have the same benefit right. as if i had done it when when it actually needed right. to be done yeah and so we might not have stuck them in the gut with a sword but a needle still leaves a scar you know so if we you know and over time, a person can be sort of pockmarked <laughs> with all the things that we've done and said to them where, where those things could have been healed if we would have just taken, taken hold of the grace that's offered to us. But you're right, I think we do. And I, I think that's one of the ways that we probably fall into a kind of rationalization that time, we'll just give this over to time and it'll take care of it. It's not that big of a deal, the person will let go of it and we'll be able to re-engage at some point. We should move on since we're getting a little late here. Be this as it may, anyone who knows that somewhere someone has something against him certainly can do one thing. He can promise himself to remove the injustice by correcting it as soon as possible. The honest intention suffices to bring down the wall between himself and his brother. Immediately the unifying element is free again to contact all parts. As soon as the injustice that isolates has been overcome, the congregation is restored. And so this brings us back to Jim's part, you know, being able to make the distinction there and that there can be, you know, this contrition that moves a person to acknowledge, uh, you know, the thing that they're struggling with, that, that in and of itself can be enough to, to begin to bring down the wall. It might not heal everything, but it's enough to allow us to step back into the congregation. Jesus' words can also be re reversed. We can say, therefore, if, if thou art offering thy gift at the altar, and there rememberest that thou hast anything against thy brother, leave thy gifts before the altar, and go first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Here you are the one with the complaint. Now you can act much more directly, for the essential depends not on the actual agreement reached by the estranged parties, but on one condition, your forgiveness. As long as you bear your grudge, no matter how valid, there can be no true congregation as far as you are concerned. Forgive honestly and sincerely, and the sacred unifying circle will close again. Perhaps this is impossible all at once. Sometimes disappointment and revolt are too great to permit genuine forgiveness right away then forgive as much as is in your power and ask God to give you an increase of forgiveness. For it is not man who affects true forgiveness. The commandment to forgive one's enemies might have been expressed, know that thou canst forgive thy enemy because Christ on the cross forgave his. 
It is He who effects forgiveness in thee. So important that it, it is really our union and communion with Christ that gives us then the capacity to love divinely. It's not, again, simply the strength of our will or our determination to forgive another. It's by our union and communion with Christ that elevates our intention and uh, gives it the, the, you know, the, the very nature of God himself, his capacity. So his virtue becomes our virtue. His strength becomes our strength at that moment. Human forgiveness is different from that which the Lord meant. It could be mere prudence, which says, let it go, nothing will come of it anyway, what James had just mentioned here or indifference, what does it matter? Or false friendliness, which is no more than inverted dislike, or cowardice, which does not trust itself to fight it out, and so forth. The forgiveness of Christ is different. It means that divine love gains a footing in us, creating that new order which is meant to reign among the sons and daughters of God. Hence, when you try to fulfill the law of love for the sake of God and his holy mysteries, you make it possible for God to allow the congregation of those rooted in his love to flower. So I'm glad he added this last section, you know, with its, its powerful emphasis upon the action of God, that too often we might feel the weight and the burden of this and again feel that there's an impossibility in it, and on a certain level there, there is, but it's our being part of the body of Christ and being united to him that then gives us access to a grace and a strength to offer forgiveness to the unforgivable and to offer love to the unlovable. And this is the extraordinary uh, community of which we are a part. And we have to begin to live our, our lives as though we, we understand that. You know, that this is not like other groups, social groups, or, you know, that we might belong to clubs, you know, that there's something far more profound that we are participating in here, and our lives have to be reflective of that. Okay. Any final comments, questions, observations? Yes. I like that he says you can forgive because Christ forgave his enemy. Um, a priest told me one time, because I was struggling with somebody who um, had wronged me, and they continued in it, and I had for tried to forgive them. And he said, if all you can say is what Christ said is, Father, forgive so-and-so, they don't know what they're doing. You know, he said, that's, if that's all you can do to confect yeah. forgiveness, you can't force somebody to, right. to reconcile with you if they don't want to. And I, and I think even going a step further than that and acknowledging the, the radical solidarity that exists between us as sinners, those, we are those who have received the forgiveness of Christ. And it's that realization that I think allows us to begin to see that we, sort of, we poison ourselves. And we, I think we've all experienced this before. We poison ourselves by our own hatred and lack of love and charity. We know that when we hold on to it or when we nurse it, it, it sours our own lives and affects our minds, our emotions, and even physically, it can affect us. And uh, so, you know, there's a healing that comes to us by 
you know, offering that forgiveness to others that is, you know, often beyond our imagination. Yes. I was just thinking, <clears throat> it sort of came to me one time that um, when I was trying to forgive somebody that um, I asked God to help me to forgive this person because I have done no better mm-hmm. than that person. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, again, getting back to Philip Neary, you know, the, the, the thought there, but the grace of God go I. You know, it often takes a lot to be able to say that, you know, when we see something, not to rush to judgment, even where where it seems clear and obvious to us that somebody has done wrong. We don't, we don't know what was really going on in their heart. We don't know the reasons that they're acting in the way that they, they are. And we don't know what we would do absent the grace and the protection of God. Won't we close there then with the prayer to St. Philip Neri? If I could ask you to stand. And together let us pray. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things. Look down and visit, most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, Undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, roll thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and placed as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, Thanks to God. God. Uh,